Hello, this is William Fink. This program is being pre-recorded for Christogenia Saturdays. It will be broadcast and posted at the website Saturday, March 10th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This program is being pre-recorded at 9 p.m. on Thursday, March 8th so that Melissa and I can travel to Bristol, Tennessee Friday and Saturday and do so comfortably. We will be on the road for probably 10 to 12 days. We have an engagement next Saturday as well. If any of our friends have not noticed, last Saturday's program, which was titled Christian Identity, What Difference Does It Make? And the program we have just pre-recorded for Friday night this week, the 9th, which is part of a series and which is titled Christianity in the Old Testament, Part 1, and it is an introduction which is subtitled, What is a Catholic? Defining Catholic according to the early so-called Church Fathers. These programs are designed to answer some of the recent critics of Christian identity. Tonight we continue those answers. We really must have rankled the Jewish pretenders in the so-called alt-right because they cannot keep our names off of their lips and they have begun to criticize us directly. Recently, a few of them said on a podcast that they would give me some attention if I could only show them two seed line in the early so-called church fathers. These fools are too stupid to know first that long ago I have elucidated two seed line teachings in the early church fathers, and second, that I don't want their attention. They cling to so-called traditional Christianity. They call themselves trad Christians. They may as well be tranny Christians. And they are also too stupid to know that traditional or orthodox Christianity, which is not real Christianity, represents all of the errors that have gotten our white race into the trouble it is in now. Why would we want to go back to something that is assisted in our destruction? So tonight we thought we would present what for us is old information, but in a new light, and this is early 2C line reiterated. We have titled this program in such a manner because most of the things we are about to present here we have presented before. We reiterate them now and hope to elaborate upon them somewhat further in light of these recent criticisms we have suffered from certain individuals who have apparently not even actually read our material, but only scoff at the general idea of Christian identity. In reality, they have no accurate concept of what they criticize because it is demonstrable that they criticize our work without ever having actually studied it. 
So there are so-called traditionalist Christians who have criticized our Christian identity position on scripture and especially on what we call two seed line. They claim that if two seed line is not found in the early so-called church fathers, then it simply cannot be true. They claim that if two seed line is not found in the early so-called church fathers, then we have no credibility. But they are wrong because our two synagogue teachings are indeed evident in some of the earliest Christian writings. And if we can demonstrate that there are at least a few references found in the earliest Christian writings which agree with two seed line, it is no mistake and then these traditionalist Christians have a serious problem if they continue to dispute with us because it is they who are citing these early Christian fathers as authorities. It is they who uphold these church fathers as authorities where we ourselves do not esteem them to such a degree. Furthermore, there is definite evidence that the writings of the church fathers themselves were often edited by later hands. Sections of their writings were cut out or modified to hide some of their supposed heresies as well as some of their obvious ones. Many of the early church fathers did indeed espouse one heresy or another. Furthermore, interpolations of their writings were frequently made to lend support to later theological arguments. Among other reasons, this is why we would much rather interpret scripture for ourselves from the oldest possible manuscripts and within the context of the best possible understanding of history and the culture of the times. So to us, the church fathers are not really authorities, especially because they're always in conflict with themselves. Let me state that the writings of the so-called church fathers are often in conflict with one another and at times they are even found to be apparent in apparent conflict with themselves. Sometimes the conflicts are cleared up when the broader context of a writer's opinions is examined and sometimes it is not. But for many of them, their writings are voluminous, so it is a very tedious and time-consuming task to mine through them in order to formulate definitive conclusions in regard to their opinions on various topics. Moreover, it is clear that many of them had even admittedly introduced Greek philosophy into their Christian doctrines. They mixed scripture with Plato and others, and therefore we must recognize that their opinions were tainted with pagan ideas as well as Jewish ones.
as they also often accepted the opinions of the Jews concerning the Old Testament. Church fathers, far from perfect, and most of them were far from being fathers. In other regards, various early Christian writers had other problems. For example, Justin Martyr never cited Paul of Tarsus, and so far as we have seen, he seems to have been ignorant of accounts related in the book of Acts. Many Judean Christians had rejected Paul long before Justin Martyr was even born. This we can see even in the book of Acts itself, in chapter 21, where there is evident a difference between James and Paul regarding the keeping of the law of Moses. James evidently believed that while those from among the nations should only be required to keep the commandments of Christ, and a few other things as we see in Acts chapter 15, that the Judeans should maintain their own Mosaic customs separately. So we read in Acts chapter 21, in verse 18, And the day following Paul went in with us unto James. And all the elders were present, and he, when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the nations, or Gentiles, in the King James, by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews, or Judeans properly, which there, there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Judeans which are among the nations, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Now, we would agree with Paul that Yahweh said he would make again Israel and Judah into one stick, something which is impossible if they maintain separate identities and distinct customs. In Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho, he himself seemed to be referring to the later Ebionites, where he compares Judean Christians who continued to keep the law of Moses, but who did not expect non-Judeans to keep it, just as we have seen in Acts chapter 21. And others in Judea, who believed that the law of Moses should be kept by everyone, people which Paul also contended with. But while the Judaizers, as the people who insist that everybody should keep the law of Moses, are called, but while the Judaizers did not prevail among the nations, they did evidently prevail among the Judeans, and the sect of the Ebionites evolved. The sect of the Ebionites is very similar to many of the comments and doctrines of Justin Martyr. There are also further similarities between Justin's writings and the literature of the later sect of the Ebionites, but there is no explicit connection between the two.
We believe that Justin Martyr, a Greek Christian in Samaria, was influenced by the Judean Christians who despised Paul and clung to Moses, and for that reason he did not employ nor even seem to know the works of Paul of Tarsus. We didn't have internet and instant communications in those days. All of the Christian churches in the various districts and countries and provinces of Rome were indeed independent. So a short time after Justin, the early Christian writer Irenaeus wrote in his Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 26, Those who are called Ebionites agree that the world was made by God, but their opinions with respect to the Lord are similar to those of Corinthus and Carpocrates. They use the gospel according to Matthew only and repudiate the Apostle Paul maintaining that he was an apostate from the law. As to the prophetical writings, they endeavor to expound them in a somewhat singular manner. They practice circumcision, persevere in the observance of those customs which are enjoined by the law, and are so Judaic, or Jewish, in their style of life, that they even adore Jerusalem as if it were the house of God. And this was over a hundred years after Jerusalem was leveled by the Romans under Titus. Justin Martyr is only one example of a significant divergence of opinions among the early church fathers. There are many others. It can be established that Clement of Alexandria, he was a Gnostic. And in many ways... It is admissible that his peculiar definition of Gnosticism reflects a pious attitude. However, he nevertheless accepted many of their heresies, and that acceptance affected his interpretations of Scripture. Irenaeus seemed to be gullible and accepted certain apocryphal writings that can be shown to be discredited or to have been discredited at an early time and deservedly so. Tertullian, a small-c Catholic, later disputed with Catholics and went off on some of his own heresies, like triple baptism. He believed you should be baptized three times. Don't ask me why. It is possible that I could make a career out of picking apart and condemning the so-called Church Fathers. But I would rather spend my time expounding upon what history and the scriptures actually teach. I would rather engage myself in edification rather than the tearing down of tradition, as the truth of scripture by itself destroys the unreliable traditions of men. Yet in spite of their faults, on the other hand, each of them were correct concerning many things, and they are valuable to us for many other reasons which we will not take the time to elaborate upon here. We only need to look at them not as idols, but as early men like ourselves seeking the truth about God and Scripture. And we can learn from their writings while casting aside their errors. 
So here is an expansion of our before-published notes from 2C line in the early church fathers. We presented most of this in July of 2015 on a program which we had done with Sven Longshanks. First, our basic position, our basic Christian identity position. I'm going to try to explain this in a few short paragraphs for those who may listen to this but really don't know us. Our basic position is that there is a race of people on earth who were created by God, which is the Adamic race, and the children of Israel were separated from out of that race for a peculiar purpose. We can demonstrate through history that all of the Adamic Genesis 10 nations, all of the nations which descended from Noah, were white. That can be demonstrated from the classics. The world, which is the Adamic society, not the whole planet, was to be inherited by that one particular family of the seed of Abraham. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that they certainly did inherit that world by the time of Christ. In the persons of the Romans, the Dorian and Danan Greeks, not the Ionian Greeks, they're separate, the Germanic Chimerians and the Galatahi, and the Phoenicians and the Proto-Celtic peoples of the West, as well as the Parthians of the East. All of these and other related tribes descended from the children of Israel and migrated into Europe from approximately 1600 BC down to the last great movements of the Germanic tribes ending in the 5th century AD. Preceding them into Europe were the Japhethite tribes who settled parts of Europe to one degree of success or another because Europe, in Europe the temperature swings drastically from millennium to millennium and the millennium before Christ, Europe was in a thaw. At the time of Herodotus and the writers of the ancient classics, it was nearly impossible for men to dwell north of the Danube River because of the cold. And they wrote that. The British Isles are a different story. The British Isles and the extremities of Western Europe are warmed by the currents of the Atlantic Ocean by the Gulf Stream. They have a different climate than the Ukraine, for instance, or Belarusia, which we know, or, or, or Poland and Central Europe and Germany. Both the Old and New Covenants were made with these same children of Israel who had come to inhabit much of Europe and with nobody else. As the scripture explicitly promises, 
and as the apostles explicitly taught. There is no valid replacement for these people, as collectively they and their legitimate descendants are the church of scripture. Even if the church of man has not yet been conceived in this same manner. As the, as the Old Testament so often teaches, even when they sin, Yahweh God has promised to save them and informs them that ultimately they shall repent. He even promised to save them from their own agreement with hell, with death, and with the grave. No other people is ever given such promises in Scripture, Old Testament or New. The children of Israel are the lone beneficiaries of the promises of God, and He will not lose one of them. That is the promise of Christ. Now, apart from them, there is a race, if I must, proper, if I can properly refer to bastards as a race, if I can possibly refer to bastards as people, which I would rather not do. Apart from them, apart from that Adamic race, there is a race of people which cannot ever be redeemed, which Yahweh God did not plan, because they are bastards which therefore came into existence in rebellion from God, and which can never be redeemed or reconciled to him. They are literally the children of the devil, or of demons. They are forever with, in enmity with the children of God. And in the end, we have a promise. They shall all be destroyed. These two races, if we can call them that, are described several ways in Scripture. Before the transgression of Adam, they were the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as opposed to the tree of life. At the transgression, they were identified in part as the seed of the serpent as opposed to the seed of the woman, the wicked as opposed to the righteous, etc., etc., the lines can never be crossed between the two races. The wicked race can never be considered good, regardless of its apparent behavior. It can never be accepted upon repentance, because it is not from God in the first place. The good race can engage in wicked behavior, and for that reason, members of that race can be numbered with the bastards. But if they themselves are not bastards, they always have the opportunity to repent and once again be numbered among the children of God, which is where they belong in the first place. <clears throat> this may be as simple an explanation that I can offer of 2C line without going into a plethora of citations and many pages of further explanation. The bottom line is this. There is a race which God created, and it was a rebellion which resulted in a collection of bastards, 
or bastard races. A child of God can join the bastards in their sin and repent and return home. But bastards themselves are a corruption of God's creation and they have no home where they may ever return. So with that being explained, if we find a race which is described by the early church fathers, which had an origin other than our own race, and which has no opportunity for repentance and conversion, then we find two seed-line teachings in the early church fathers. And our position cannot justly be discredited by our trad Christian critics, by the cucks who call themselves traditionalist and orthodox Christians. Rather, it is the critics themselves who need to recognize that we are correct. But before we offer that evidence in the early church fathers, we will offer a brief discussion of some of the universalist poison of Clement, Origen, and Eusebius. Clement of Alexandria misused the phrase, brood of vipers, in Book 1, Chapter 11 of The Instructor, or Pedagogus, and in Book 4, Chapter 16 of The Stromata. Then in his exhortation to the heathen in Chapter 1, he ascertained that one could go from being of the brood of vipers to being a man of God by accepting Christ, where he wrote, Again, therefore, some venomous and false hypocrites who plotted against righteousness. He once called a brood of vipers. But if one of those serpents is even willing to repent and follows the word, he becomes a man of God. I would say, bullshit. With this we disagree. As Christ himself had professed that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his angels, as well as all of the goat nations. That is their predestined fate, and from that they have no escape. John the Baptist had asked a particular brood of such vipers, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Then he challenged them to repent, as the enemies of God are often challenged to repent. But they can never repent. And Luke informs us later, that they were neither baptized by him, nor did they repent in Luke chapter 7. The universalist position of scripture was expressed by Clement of Alexandria, that you could jump that fence from one side to the other. And after him it was continued by his student Origen, another Alexandrian, and then by Eusebius. And by the time of Eusebius,
It seems to be the only position which he could imagine, although he neglected to mention at least some of his own theological opponents. Imagine that. Eusebius wasn't honest. He was a partisan. He was biased towards the line of thinking that came from Clement through Origen down to him. He neglected to mention some of his own theological opponents, such as Methodius of Olympus. Eusebius very likely omitted mention of Methodius because he was a theological opponent of Origen. Both men were heavily influenced by Plato. However, in many ways it is evident that there was no general consensus among many of the so-called church fathers that the politically expedient doctrines were adopted by the later church. That's exactly what happened. And it's very simple to read through the church fathers and see that. It's right there in front of your face. In a letter from Origen to Africanus about the history of Susanna, in part 9, Origen insisted that the story of Susanna was removed from the scriptures. We would agree. But he did not attribute the removal properly where he wrote, Wherefore I think no other supposition is possible than that they who had the reputation of wisdom and the elders and rulers took away from the people every passage which might bring them into discredit among the people. We need not wonder then if this history of the evil device of the licentious elders against Susanna is true, but was concealed and removed from the scriptures by men themselves, not very far removed from the council of these elders. However, when we read Susanna itself, Daniel the prophet attributed the behavior of the rabbis, those licentious elders, to the fact that they were of the seed of Canaan and not of Judah, who were posing as men of Judah. We would assert that for this reason the story of Susanna was oppressed by early Jews who were indeed the seed of Canaan themselves, as both the histories of Josephus and the New Testament writers all attest. According to the words of Christ in Scripture, tares are people, but according to Origen, tares are evil opinions. What a clown. Furthermore, the scripture teaches that demons or devils can be either human or spirits, either or, not one or the other, and that they can be embodied or disembodied. Examples of this are in the warning of Peter where he said that your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about. And in the words of Christ concerning Judas Iscariot where he said, Have I not chosen you twelve? and one of you is a devil? There are many other passages 
which established this. But Origen also seems confused as to the nature of demons, where he sometimes seems to admit that they are human. We will see that Justin Martyr certainly upheld that demons could be human. So did Tertullian. In Volume 4 of the Antinicene Fathers, in Origins Against Celsus, at the very end of Book 7, he says that demons are scattered, as it were, in troops in different parts of the earth. And we would agree. Africa is full of demons. So is Atlanta now. So is Newark, New Jersey, or Baltimore. So is Cleveland, Pittsburgh. <laughs> or a hundred other American cities. They're loaded with demons, especially New York. <coughs> then in Book 3 of Origins Against Celsus, <coughs> in Chapter 32, he seems to make the same implication where he says that we have to answer that probably certain wicked demons contrived that such statements should be committed to writing. In other words, some of the scribes were demons. And we would certainly agree with that. And the scripture advises us of that. Indirectly. However, Origen was also a universalist, as it is clear in Origen de Principis in chapter 5, on rational natures, where he gives, quote-unquote, every rational creature the ability to earn praise or receive censure from God, and imagines that even the devil and his angels can repent and earn praise. In contrast, Paul of Tarsus said in Hebrews chapter 12 that if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father does not chasten? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. So we see that Origen's opinion was contrary to that of the Apostle. Origen was also a futurist, insisting on a future Antichrist rather than the earthly Antichrists of the Apostle John which he explained in Against Celsus Book 6 in Chapter 45 and Book 1 in Chapter 61. Origen insisted that the Antichrist would be revealed in the future, while the epistles of the Apostle John insist that the Antichrists are among us now, as do the epistles of Jude and Peter and Paul. For example, John wrote that even now there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time, in 1 John chapter 2. And for many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist, and a Jew, as he wrote in 2 John verse 7. We add the word Jew to that because it was the Jews that John was talking about.
It can also be shown that the theology of the 3rd century Gallic bishop Irenaeus was also patterned to a great degree after Clement and Origen. But not all early Christians agreed with these things which Origen had taught. Now we shall present some evidence from the so-called Church Fathers, which favors to Seedline. And all of these so-called Trad Christians should wake the hell up, because the Church Fathers do teach to Seedline. At least some of them did, some of the time. Justin Martyr was a Christian apologist who wrote in the second in the middle of the second century AD. He was born around 100 AD in Judea. Although he was of Roman or Greek ethnicity, Roman and or Greek ethnicity, we're really not sure. If we read only parts of Justin Martyr, without considering everything he said, we may be led to believe that he was a universalist. Here is an example from his first apology, chapter 28, subtitled, God's Care for Men. For among us, the prince of the wicked spirits is called the serpent, and Satan, and the devil, as you can learn by looking into our writings, and that he would be sent into the fire with his host, and the men who follow him and would be punished for an endless duration, Christ foretold. For the reason why God has delayed to do this is his regard for the human race. For he foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance, some even that are perhaps not yet born. In the beginning he made the human race with the power of thought and of choosing the truth and doing right, so that all men are without excuse before God for they have been born rational and contemplative. And if anyone disbelieves that God cares for these things, he will thereby either insinuate that God does not exist, or he will assert that though he exists, he delights in vice, or exists like a stone, and that neither virtue nor vice are anything. This was actually the doctrine of the Pharisees, of the, I'm sorry, of the Sadducees. But only in, opinion, only in the opinion of men, these things are reckoned good or evil. That was the opinion of the Sadducees. All this is the greatest profanity and wickedness. Now here on the surface, it does appear as if Justin and Origen both agreed that the rational thought of man can permit man to choose to be good or evil. However, Scripture teaches that the righteous and wicked are distinguished by the word of God and not by the choosing of men. Being chosen, the righteous are urged to obedience, and for those not chosen, it matters not what they do. Christ told his apostles, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Men don't choose God, God chooses men. However, if we continue reading, we will learn that not all two-legged creatures were considered human by Justin. From the second apology of Justin, how the angels transgressed. But if this idea takes possession of someone, that if we acknowledge God as our helper, we should not, as we say, 
be oppressed and persecuted by the wicked. This too I will solve. God, when he had made the whole world and subjected things earthly to man, had arranged the heavenly elements for the increase of fruits and rotation of the seasons, and appointed this divine law. For these things also he evidently made for man, committed the care of men and of all things under heaven to angels whom he appointed over them. But the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women and begat children who are those that are called demons. And besides, they afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, partly by magical writings and partly by fears and the punishments they occasioned, and partly by teaching them to offer sacrifices and incense and libations of which things they stood in need after they were enslaved by lustful passions. And among men they sowed murders, wars, adulteries, intemperate deeds, and all wickedness. These are proto-Jews that Justin is talking about. Whence also the poets and mythologists, not knowing that it was the angels and those demons who had been begotten by them that did these things to men and women and cities and nations, which they related, ascribed them to God himself, and to those who were accounted to be his very offspring, and to the offspring of those who were called his brother, Neptune and Pluto, and to the children again of these their offspring, for whatever name each of the angels had given to himself and his children, by that name they called them. Mythology aside, therefore we see in Justin's mind that demons are men which were born among us who were the result of the unions described in Genesis chapter 6 between women and the so-called angels. He also professes that these demons have children. The apocryphal book of Enoch, which the apostles themselves had cited, informs us of this same thing. We would assert that these very children can be traced in scripture to the Kenites and Rephaim of Genesis chapter 15, and from there they can be traced down through the entire Bible, and that they are still with us today. That is a main tenet of two-seed-line teaching. But there is more to it than that. The following is from the Dialogue of Justin, philosopher and martyr, with Trypho, a Jew, or properly a Judean, from chapter 4, which was titled, The Soul of Itself Cannot See God. And this is a dialogue. And we begin with Trypho. And what do those suffer who are judged to be unworthy of this spectacle, said he? And Justin responds, They are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts, and this is their punishment. Now we should keep this statement in mind for later, when we present a passage from the Shepherd of Hermas. For now, Justin continues his dialogue, where Trypho, at, where Trypho asks, do they know then that it is for this reason they are in such forms, and that they have committed some sin? And Justin says, I do not think so. And Trypho asks, or says, 
then these reap no advantage from their punishment, as it seems. Moreover, I would say that they are not punished unless they are conscious of the punishment. Justin responds, No, indeed. And Trypho says, Therefore souls neither see God nor transmigrate into other bodies, for they would know that so they are punished, and they would be afraid to commit even the most trivial sin afterwards, but that they can perceive that God exists and that righteousness and piety are honorable. I also quite agree with you, said he. And Justin replied, you are right. And therefore we see that not only are demons people, but evil spirits are locked in the bodies of wild beasts, who are also evidently people, as the apostles Peter and Jude both described those infiltrators among Christians as natural brute beasts, which were made to be taken and destroyed. This is another important tenet of two seed line teaching, because we do not consider the other races to be people. We consider them beasts. And we see that Justin also did, and the apostles. Further on in the dialogue of Justin, philosopher and martyr with Trypho, a Judean, from chapter 79, which was subtitled, he proves against Trypho that the wicked angels have revolted from God. On this Trypho, on whatever Justin had answered before this, on this Trypho, who was somewhat angry, but respected the scriptures, as was manifest from his countenance, said to me, The utterances of God are holy, but your expositions are mere contrivances, as it is plain from what has been explained by you, nay, even blasphemies, for you assert that the angels sinned and revolted from God. And I, wishing to get him to listen to me, answered in milder tones thus, I admire, sir, this piety of yours, and I pray that you may entertain the same disposition towards him to whom angels are recorded to minister. As Daniel says, for one like the Son of Man is led to the Ancient of Days, and every kingdom is given to him forever and ever. But that you may know, sir, continued I, or Justin, that it is not our audacity which has induced us to adopt this exposition, which you reprehend. <coughs> Trypho, being a Jew, evidently would not have had the convenience of the information in the book of Revelation that clarifies much of the Old Testament. Justin says, I shall give you evidence from Isaiah himself. For he affirms that evil angels have dwelt and do dwell in Tanis in Egypt. These are his words. Woe to the rebellious children. Thus saith the Lord, You have taken counsel, but not through me, and made agreements, but not through my spirit, and added sins to sins, who have sinned in going down to Egypt, but they have not inquired at me, that they may be assisted by Pharaoh and be covered with the shadow of the Egyptians." protected it, in other words. For the shadow of Pharaoh shall be a disgrace to you, 
and a reproach to those who trust in the Egyptians. For the princes in Tanis are evil angels. In vain will they labor for a people which will not profit them by assistance, but will be for a disgrace and a reproach to them. That's the end of his quotation from Isaiah. And he says, and further, Zechariah tells us, as you yourself have related, evidently referring to Trypho, that the devil stood on the right hand of Joshua the priest to resist him. And the Lord said, The Lord who has taken Jerusalem rebukes thee. And again it is written in Job, as you yourself said, how that the angels came to stand before the Lord and the devil came with them. And we have recorded it by Moses in the beginning of Genesis that the serpent beguiled Eve and was cursed. And we know that in Egypt there were magicians who emulated the mighty power displayed by God through the faithful servant Moses. And you are aware that David said, the gods of the nations are demons. Justin Martyr clearly believed that there were men who were of the seed of the serpent and dwelt among us. In his comparisons here, Justin also equated the serpent of Genesis to such a man, and that is another very important tenet of two seed-line teachings. Justin may not have identified each of the two seed-lines in the same manner which we do, but he clearly taught what we can call two seed-line. Tertullian was the theological opponent of both Clement and Origen. Not the only one, but he was a theological component. <laughs> opponent, I'm sorry, of both Clement and Origen. So he would have also been an opponent of Eusebius, if only he had lived that long. He was a Christian apologist, a defender of Christianity. That's what an apologist means in the ancient sense, a defender. He was a Christian apologist and bishop of Carthage, who wrote in the early 3rd century. While a lot of the ideas of Clement and Origen were from Plato and other Greek philosophers, Tertullian more properly saw in the Greek philosophers the descendants of more ancient Old Testament heretics. We may not think that the Greek philosophers themselves were devils, but they were certainly all influenced by the doctrines of devils. The following is from Tertullian's Apology, from chapter 22. And we affirm, indeed, the existence of certain spiritual essences, nor is their name unfamiliar. The philosophers acknowledge there are demons, Socrates himself waiting on a demon's will. Why not, since it is said an evil spirit attached itself, especially to him, even from his childhood? Turning his mind, no doubt, from what was good. The poets are all acquainted with demons, too. Even the ignorant common people make frequent use of them in cursing. In fact, they call upon Satan the demon chief in their execrations, as though from some instinctive soul knowledge of him. Plato also admits the existence of angels. 
The dealers in magic, no less, come forward as witnesses to the existence of both kinds of spirits. We are instructed, moreover, by our sacred books, how from certain angels, who fell of their own free will, there sprang a more wicked demon brood, condemned of God, along with the authors of their race and that chief we have referred to. It will for the present be enough, however, that some account is given of their work. Their great business is the ruin of mankind. Sounds like Jews to me. So from the very first, spiritual wickedness sought our destruction. Spiritual wickedness embodied in human form. Demons in shoe leather these are tenets of two seed line and Christian identity. Is the endeavor to identify these people in scripture and in history. That's what we do. So that we may identify them in the world today. Mike Enoch. <laughs> Further, from the appendix to the works attributed to Tertullian, entitled five books in reply to Marcion, but which are claimed by some to be of unknown authorship. We see the racial message of Christian identity did indeed persist down to Tertullian's time. Whether or not Tertullian himself actually wrote this, this is from book five, a general reply to sundry of Marcion's heresies. The first book did the enemy's words recall in order which the senseless renegade composed and put forth lawlessly. Hence too touched briefly flesh's hope, Christ's victory, and false ways speciousness. The next, the next book, does teach the law's conjoined mysteries, and what, in the new covenant, the one God has delivered. The third shows the race, created from freeborn mother, in other words, speaking of Sarah, as opposed to Hagar, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4. The third, the third book, shows the race, created from freeborn mother, to be ministers, sacred to seers and patriarchs, whom thou, O Christ, in number twice six out of all, twelve tribes out of all, whom thou, O Christ, in number twice six out of all, chosest with their names, the lustral times of our own elders noted, times preserved on record, showing in whose days appeared, the author of this wickedness unknown, lawless and roaming, cast forth with his brood or race. Two races are opposed there, the race of the twelve tribes, versus the race of the author of wickedness. The fourth, too, the peculiar right recalls of the old law themselves, and shows them 
Types in which the victim true appeared by saints expected long since with the holy seed this fifth does many twists and knots untie rolls wholly into sight what ill soever were lurking drawing arguments but not without attesting profit here we can clearly see a description of the race of Christ being the chosen twelve tribes contrasted to the brood of the wicked the freeborn mother is Sarah as opposed to Hagar and to these tribes the chosen is the new covenant delivered that's what the writer said the writer considers the tribes to be our own elders this also reflects important tenets of two seed line Christian identity now Tertullian's writing was not perfect and seemed a little confused he also had hints of universalism for instance in a treatise on the soul from chapter 21 he says if so then God will not be able any longer to raise up from the stones children unto Abraham nor to make a generation of vipers bring forth fruits of repentance and if so the apostle too was in error when he said in his epistle ye were at one time darkness but are now but now are ye light in the Lord and we also were by nature children of wrath and such were some of you but you are washed the statements however of Holy Scripture will never be discordant with truth a corrupt tree will never yield good fruit unless the better nature be grafted into it this is a universalist statement Tertullian is abusing taking passages of scripture out of context and using them to try to show that you could jump the fence from the brood of the wicked to the children of God and that's not possible we can refute this but we will nevertheless repeat it to demonstrate some of Tertullian's errors he says a corrupt tree will never yield good fruit unless the better nature be grafted into it we would say that when the better nature is grafted into a corrupt tree all you end up with is a bastard but he says nor will a good tree produce evil fruit except by the same process of cultivation and of course if a wicked nature is grafted into a good tree the children will be bastards Tertullian says stones also will become children of Abraham if educated in Abraham's faith and a generation of vipers will bring forth the fruits of penitence if they reject the poison of their malignant nature this will be the power of the grace of God more potent indeed than nature exercising its sway over the faculty that underlines itself within us even the freedom of our will which is described as Autesusius or of independent authority and inasmuch as this faculty is also natural and mutable in whatsoever direction it turns it inclines of its own nature now that there does exist within us naturally this independent authority the autosusion we have already shown in opposition to both Marcion and to Hermogenes. Now we would dispute with this. Children of Abraham may be raised from stones, 
But the Baptists did not say that stones can be made children of Abraham. Furthermore, children of Abraham may be raised from stones, but that does not make them the children of the promise. For that reason, Paul contrasted Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, or Sarah and Hagar in Galatians chapter 4. Paul then said in Romans 9 that the children of the promise are counted for the seed, referring to the promise made to Sarah and then to Rebekah, which was fulfilled in Jacob. Neither does this detract from Tertullian's statements concerning a demon brood as a distinct race, if, like Justin Martyr, he does not count them as men. Indeed, he cannot. Ignatius of Antioch lived until about 117 AD, making him one of the earliest of post-apostolic Christian writers. Some scholars identify only about half of the letters attributed to him as valid. Among those are those to the Italians and the Magnesians, which we are about to cite. Other scholars doubt the validity of any of his epistles. However, they are indeed of great antiquity. From the Epistle of Ignatius to the Italians, from chapter 11. Avoid the deadly errors of the Dogatahi. Do ye also, he writes, do ye also avoid those wicked offshoots of his, Simon his firstborn, and Menander, and Basilides, and all his wicked mob of followers, the worshippers of a man, whom also the prophet Jeremiah pronounces accursed. Flee also the impure Nicolaitans, falsely so-called, who are lovers of pleasure and given to calumnious speeches. Avoid also the children of the evil one, Theodotus and Cleobulus, who produce death-bearing fruit, whereof, if anyone tastes, he instantly dies, and that not a mere temporary death, but one that shall endure forever. And, of course, Ignatius is writing allegorically, and he says, These men are not the planting of the Father, but are an accursed brood. And says the Lord, Let every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted be rooted up. For if they had been branches of the Father, they would not have been enemies of the cross of Christ, but rather of those who killed the Lord of glory. But now denying the cross, and being ashamed of the passion, they cover the transgression of the Jews, those fighters against God, those murderers of the Lord. For if it were too little to style them merely murderers of the prophets, but Christ invites you to share in his immortality by his passion and resurrection inasmuch as ye are his members. Ignatius professes that there can be men who are not the planting of the Father, a brood which does not originate with God, and that the behavior of certain men prove that they belong to that brood. Then, in his epistle to the Magnesians, he proclaims that it is absurd to profess Jesus Christ 
and to Judaize. For Christianity did not embrace Judaism, but Judaism Christianity, so that every tongue which believeth might be gathered together to God. Just like the Catholics that we had illustrated the early original Catholics that we had illustrated in our program last night Ignatius believed that the Old Covenant was Christian and belonged to Christians and that the Jews are the improvisers that is Christian identity that's exactly what we believe. That's a major tenet of Christian identity. So once again, there is a wicked brood or race which were not planted by Yahweh and which have no opportunity for redemption. Once again, we see a church father agree with the tenets of 2C line. So far, we have seen two seed-line doctrines in the writings of Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Ignatius of Antioch. Now we shall see it in one more place, and perhaps a place which is more legitimate than any of these others. We cited this passage yesterday evening in another context, but we will also cite it and discuss it here yesterday evening, the program which I pre-recorded for this coming Friday. The following is from the edition of the Pastor of Hermas, which is found in the Anti-Nicene Fathers by Robertson Donaldson, the volumes of the early Christian writers which we have employed throughout these presentations. This is from the third book, Similitudes, from the ninth similitude titled, The Great Mysteries in the Building of the Militant and Triumphant Church. Chapter 19 <coughs> From the first mountain, which was black, they did believe of the following, apostates and blasphemers against the Lord, and betrayers of the servants of God. To these repentance is not open, but death lies before them, and on this account also are they black, for their race is a lawless one. And from the second mountain, which was bare, they who believed are the following, hypocrites and teachers of wickedness. And these accordingly, accordingly are like the former, not having any fruits of righteousness. For as their mountain was destitute of fruit, so also such men have a name indeed, but are empty of faith, and there is no fruit of truth in them. They indeed have repentance in their power, if they repent quickly, but if they are slow in doing so, they shall die along with the former, meaning those niggers on the first mountain. Why, sir, I said, here we have a sort of dialogue, had these repentance but the former not, for their actions are nearly the same. On this account, he said, had these repentance, because they did not blaspheme their Lord, nor become betrayers of the servants of God. But on account of their dire on, on their desire of possessions, they became hypocritical, and each one taught according to the desires of men that were sinners. But they will suffer a certain punishment, and repentance is before them, 
because they were not blasphemers or traitors. Regardless of what we may make of the allegory in the overall context of the Pastor of Hermas, we see that there is a race which is lawless and wicked, and that to these repentance is not open, but death lies before them. And on this account also are they black, for their race is a lawless one. The apostles themselves spoke of the angels that sinned, and attested that they were bound in chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. They did not say that the angels were bound in chains in darkness, but in chains of darkness. Neither can they ever see repentance, as it is not open to them. This is also an important tenet of two seed line. We have four major witnesses of two seed line, with explicit statements promoting or supporting our two seed line beliefs in the early church fathers. Our two seed line belief is the most hated of all Christian doctrines. We believe that you're either a son or a bastard, and it's no wonder to us that these things were left out of the church at the time of the Council of Nicaea because they were not expedient to the maintenance of an empire. Now we are going to borrow something which Clifton Emmerheiser had first published in his paper Early Celtic Church Taught Physical Seduction of Eve. Clifton had found evidence that the early Celtic Church, which was independent of the Church of Rome until about the 13th century, had some tenets of 2C line in its original doctrine. This he found in a book titled The Celtic Church in Britain by Leslie Harding in a chapter entitled The Role of the Scriptures on page 48. Here Clifton said that in this chapter he demonstrates the various methods of teaching used by the Celtic clergy. One of those methods was a question-and-answer liturgy of which the following is an authentic specimen and we will give the answers after each question. This seems like it was probably for children, but that's fine. It's a matter of the record, and it stands regardless. Who died but was never born? Adam. Who gave but did not receive? Eve, milk. Who was born but did not die? Elias and Enoch. Who was born twice and died once? Jonas the prophet, who for three days and nights prayed in the belly of the whale. He neither saw the heavens nor touched the earth. How many languages are there? Seventy-two. That's taken after the Genesis chapter 10 table of nations. Who spoke with a dog? St. Peter. Who spoke with an ass? Balaam the prophet. Who was the first woman to commit adultery? Eve with the serpent. How were the apostles baptized? The Savior washed their feet. That's the end of the liturgy. 
Clifton then responds and says, Now, all of you anti-seedliners, and everyone knows who you are, that have been running around all over the country making all kinds of snide remarks and asking if two-seedline is true, why didn't the early church fathers teach it? My answer is, they did teach it. The anti-seedliners simply haven't done their homework. And all of you who have been following and supporting these theology quacks, don't you think it's about time to put their feet to the fire? False teachings scatter rather than gather the sheep. And of course Clifton's appraisal is true. False doctrines cause divisions and worse that our foes in Christian identity are the fools who claim to be worse than our foes in Christian identity are the fools who claim to be traditional Christians and who cling to the universal church which has above all been guilty of the destruction of our race at the hands of demons in human form. Clifton continues with the book he had cited. Harding finished this chapter by saying the following. The Celtic Church cherished a deep love of the Bible, and from the epistles of St. Paul developed their theology. The Psalms were used in worship, and were the inspiration of poets and preachers. Without the influence of the views of church fathers, Celtic theologians set about discovering what the scriptures meant. Their tenets and practices, based on this understanding, show the eclecticism and pragmatism of exegete and layman. The legislation of Moses pervaded social, economic, and legal relationships to an extent seldom seen in the history of other branches of the church. Unlike the theologians of Roman Christianity, who appealed more and more to the teachings of church and councils. Celtic teachers stressed the Bible. The role of the scriptures in Celtic Christianity was indeed a vital one, so much so that no thorough study of the beliefs and practices of the Christians of Celtic lands is possible without bearing this fact in mind. Clifton now concludes that Eve committed adultery with a serpent was one of the tenets that the Celtic clergy taught. Over the last several years I have piled substantial evidence on top of substantial evidence, yet hecklers on the sidelines continue to criticize my research. It will be interesting how they will try to gainsay this evidence, but I'm sure they will attempt some asinine tactic. While some will blow everything but their nose, others will be strangely quiet. Clifton had boasted that the early church fathers did indeed to teach to seed line, and this, this evening we have seen Clifton's boast is vindicated. The critics of two seed line on all sides can scoff at us, but scripture, history, and truth are firmly on our side. The so-called trad Christians may cling to Eusebius and the Council of Nicaea, but we shall cling to Christ and his apostles. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.